Good morning. Please be seated. We are glad you're here this morning with us as we open up our Bibles to the book, the little epistle called Jude is where we are for the next couple of weeks. Actually, five more weeks. We're going to look at a six-part series in the book of Jude. So turn there with me. Um, I'm going to have a scripture reading, and then we'll dismiss the kids. So if you're not sure where Jude is, the back of the Bible, the last book is Revelation, and the book right before Revelation is the book of Jude. Bible's in the back. If you don't have one, I'm reading from the ESV. English Standard Version is our regular scriptures that we use. There's some wonderful translations out there for sure, but we use ESV here. Jude, we're going to be reading verses 2 through 7. That may not seem like a lot, but as you will see, it is. Oop, can we put our slides up for me? Scripture reading. Michael, we're going to sing again. Everybody, come on back up. I believe in the sun. All right, I'm going to read. Michael figured that out because he's smart. Jude, verse 2. May mercy... You know what? Let's start in verse 1. Why not? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Verse 3. Beloved, though although I was very eager, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Verse 7. It's getting better, right? Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desires, served, serve, as an example, by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Anybody else want to come up and preach this? <laughs> I love God's word, so this is a joy for me to do so. Uh, let's dismiss the kids while we are in Jude. And I'm going to give this to Pastor Ricky because he's smart too and I'm not. I don't know what's the deal. All right, we'll get that. Yeah, that's all right. So we're covering six verses this morning. Thank you, sir. It's just so I can see what's on the screen. Pretty cool, right? We're going through this book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's our regular diet here. We do expository preaching. Today, as I said, we're going to do six verses. It means, it doesn't seem like a lot, but actually there's a lot here. And what I want to do as we study this text is draw out the original intent so that we can hear the voice of God and then bring some application to it. When you don't have context, you have pretexts. And when you have pretext, you could do what Jude says that some people in the church are doing. They're saying whatever they want the scriptures to say. So we like context here, okay? 
It seems like the problem here. So if you remember, let's put this in context. Last week, Jude is the brother of James. And both James and Jude is the half-brother of Jesus, children of Mary and Joseph after the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are several places in the New Testament that speak of Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. Jude, we said last week, identifies himself not as, the, as a, some sort of celebrity status, but being the half-brother of Jesus as a slave. He calls him a slave, a, a humble slave of Jesus Christ. Slaves in that day, we said, had no freedom, no rights, no citizenship. All they did was obey the master and tried to please the master in every way possible. And Jude says, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you remember from last week also, we said that both James and Jude, which is the abbreviation of, of the full name Judas, were not believers until the resurrection of Christ. They became followers of Christ. They became believers of Christ because of the empty tomb. These monotheistic Jews who believe in one God, who did not believe in Jesus claiming to be God, did so by the resurrection from the grave, just like the Apostle Paul, who went from persecuting Christians to worshiping Jesus because Jesus is alive and rose from the dead. Orthodox Christianity, we're going to talk about orthodoxy today, believes that God is one Co-equal, co-existent, co-eternal, one in essence, three indistinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Jude is writing this letter, we said, we're going to look at it today, to combat some form of apostasy, some form of total desertion or departure of the faith that there were those in the church who perverted the grace of God, and that is why, if you go down to verse 3, he tells the church to contend for the faith, hence the title of our series, Contending for the Faith. His audience, we said last week, were probably somewhat or at least partially Jewish in background. He uses Old Testament stories. He uses Jewish apocalyptic style literature. So it was known to them. Last week, we also looked at verse 1. That's as far as we got. But it was important because we said in verse 1, before we can get to verse 3, contending for the faith, we have to really recognize and remember the grace of God in the gospel. Verse 1 speaks of three divine graces given to followers of Christ, to every Christian. It is the call of God that awakens the heart. It is the love of God that he bestows upon us and is the keeping of God that keeps us secure to the day of redemption. This morning, what I want to do, and I want to jump right in, to finish Jude's salutation, verses 1 and 2, under the heading, the prayer of Jude. So we're going to look at verse 2. We're going to finish kind of from last week, the salutation, the opening remarks. And then we'll look at the purpose of the letter, verses 3 and 4. And then we'll get to the body, and I hope to get through the verse 7. I'll keep an eye on time. And that's the picture or, or the stories, the narrative that Jude gives us in the Old Testament to warn us of what's going to happen to those who rebel against God, who have no faith in God. That's where we're at. So turn with me to verse 2, and let's look at the prayer of Judas. Very simple. May mercy, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So Jude opens his prayer, opens his greeting with a prayer, and he articulates his desire that mercy and that peace and that love be theirs in more abundance, is the word. 
Jude loves triplets. He uses it called, loved. We said uh, first called, loved, and keeping. He uses three things here, mercy, peace, and love. And he used three stories, which we will get at. He loves using threes. That's why there's always three points to my sermon. No, just kidding. That's funny. They'll get it in the second service. They laugh more in a second. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I think they're more awake. I'm not really sure, but that's okay. Called, loved, kept. Here we see divine, not graces, but blessings, prayers. Because we need God's multiplying mercy in our life because we're hard-head sinners, right? We need God's multiplying peace especially in our world of anxiety and and, and the temptation to sin. We need God's multiplying love to sustain us and to encourage us in our spiritual battles and against the enemy's lies that we're not loved. Mercy, he says, although it's distinguished from grace here, a lot of New Testament writers open with grace, but he uses mercy, is really still all about God's goodness, his, his kindness toward the needy. Mercy is kindness and goodness of God toward the needy. Mercy, Elias, is found over hundreds of times in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, you may see in the bottom of your Bible, LXX. Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. It is a translation of the Hebrew word hased, which means covenant love of God. And in the New Testament, the noun and the verb is used over 55 times. It's a, it's a beautiful word. It is, it is a, a characteristic in God that moves him to seek relationship with those who have no right to be in relationship with him. The word speaks of compassion. Loving kindness has said, it is gracious, it is undeserved, it is unmerited, yet it's not blind, it is not uninformed. God knows what he's doing. It is the mercy of God that moves him to do for us for those things in which we, the needy, cannot do for ourselves. Just like last week, all three of these things, grace, mercy, peace, and love, are in the passive voice, which means it is God is the one, God is the one who is granting us, the one that Jude is imploring to grant us these things. God, in his mercy, does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he doesn't just wipe it under the rug. God, in mercy, does not give us what we deserve. Instead, he gave the deserved punishment for our sins and rebellion to his son when he died on the cross for our sins. And Paul writes in, in Uh, Romans 9, that those who trust Christ now are vessels of his mercy. Matthew 5, Jesus speaks about the merciful who are told that they will have mercy on other people. The merciful told they will receive mercy. Excuse me. Look down at verse 22 of Jude. He says that we are now to admonish this mercy that God gives us, the same mercy to those who are doubting in verse 22. Verse 23, to show mercy to those who are wrapped up and defiled and devastated by sin. The point is clear. Those who receive mercy need to extend mercy. Just as the man on his way down, if you know the story, to Jericho received mercy from the Good Samaritan who saw him beaten and left for dead, had compassion on him, stopped and served him and loved him. It's a picture of our missionary God who saw us in our brokenness and our bondage to sin and Satan and left for dead, but was moved to action and sent his son to die for us in our place, deserving Wrath, he gave it to his son. And that's all to make us his own. Giving us what we don't deserve. That's mercy. Jude not only asked for God to multiply his mercy to his readers as they face this danger of of this apostasy in the church, but he also grants, asked for mercy, look at verse 21, on the day of judgment. 
Not only everyday mercy, but continued mercy. Verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to what? Eternal life. Mercy, multiplying mercy. Then he says peace. Mercy, then peace. Peace cannot be separated. When you see peace in the New Testament, it's very closely linked to the Hebrew word shalom. This idea of wholeness. This idea of completeness. This total well-being. Jude, excuse me, Judges chapter 6, God is called Yahweh Shalom. Love that. Informing us that God alone is the source of peace. In Isaiah 9, we see that the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, who will come, will be the Prince of Peace. Peace begins, peace of God begins with the peace that Jesus Christ makes for us. Sinners who are Hostile to God, separated from God. God is hostile toward us because of our sin. But then he comes and grants us peace by the way of the cross. Romans 5, therefore having been justified by faith, having been found righteous and have been forgiven of our sin, righteousness of Christ, forgiven of our sins, justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where peace begins. But there's an internal peace that the scripture speaks about. And I think Jude is talking about the internal peace. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, you know the verse, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, thanksgiving and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ our Lord. Or through Jesus Christ. I think Jude is talking about that internal peace. I think Jude is warning the church, before he warns the church, is asking God to give them this inner peace, this this gentle and quiet confidence as they enter into this realm of contending for the faith. Because let's be honest, contending, some of you love to contend, but some of you who hear contending and defending the faith get a little nervous, a, a little fearful. A little anxiety that I have to stand up for the truth. Peace be with you. Remember that's what Jesus said, didn't he? After his resurrection from the grave and all his disciples are locked up in a room, what does Jesus say? Peace be with you. In fact, John 13 in the upper room, we read 13, 14, 15, and 16. Jesus is telling them about his death and his departure. And he says to them twice, peace I leave you, not as the world leaves you. I leave you peace. In the world you'll have tribulation. In me you will have peace. Take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Mercy be applied, multiplied to you. Peace be upon you. Listen, he ends with love. May God's love be multiplied to you. We talked about that last week. Now, as I thought about this, this as I thought about God's multiplying love to you, to me, to us, to them, I thought, you know, it does not mean that we're asking God to love us more. Right? God does not increase his love for you. He is, as they say, as the scriptures teach, immutable. He's unchanging. He's not maturing in the process. He is perfect, and he is by nature love. He always desires and seeks our highest good. C.H. Dodd says this, To say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love, end quote. 
John 17, Jesus tells us something amazing, that as the Father has loved the Son, so, he's, so he loves us. Romans 8, we saw this last week, that nothing will separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Jude's not talking about our love for God, nor our love for neighbor, but God's love for us. And the prayer, I believe, is that the church, those who will be contending for the faith, gets this greater understanding, a greater experience of God's love. There's a difference. It's not like it says, you know what, you were really good yesterday. I love you all the more. Our love is fickle, not God's. They needed love because the false teachers had infiltrated their community and cared only for themselves, and they abused the very purpose of the love feast in verse 12. So Jude prays for mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. This ever-growing blessings are needed in the life of the church and the demands of contending for the faith. He prayed that God would produce that for them. Now, here's something to think about. Do we pray that way? Do we pray for each other as we gather in community groups, as we gather together, we remember each other in prayer? Do we pray that the peace of God, the the mercy of God, the love of God be multiplied to you? Is that something you seek in prayer? I, I asked myself that question this week. I'm like, not really. You know, maybe when things are going crazy and you want peace, I get that. But Lord, I need your mercy every day. Multiply that mercy to me. Multiply that mercy to to those I love. Multiply your peace. Multiply your love. Let them know of your love. I think sometimes we're so busy thinking, you know what, I I really, uh, I hope my car don't cost a lot of money to fix. Please, Lord. You know what I mean? Jude's opening prayer is not a cold, redundant, and distant request, but a warm prayer of God's abundant blessings, which they need to preserve them in the time that they are facing. I said this last week, I'm going to say it again. It's worth saying again. We are to contend for the faith. and We'll get to that in a minute. We are to contend for the faith. We are to stand for the truth. But first we must recognize the grace of God in the gospel. The calling of God that liberates, awakens, renews the heart by grace alone. We sang about that. It is God who calls us. It is God who loves us unconditionally. It is God who keeps us. We don't keep ourselves. And now Jude is asking God to multiply his undeserved mercy to his people, his sustaining peace to his people, his unmerited love to those who are called to contend for the faith. You've been called, you've been loved, you've been kept. Mercy, peace, and love be upon you. Now verse 3. The purpose. Please see that this morning. Because, and I make this preliminary remark, there's a major difference between contending for the faith and being contentious. Some people just want to fight all the time. As a pastor, I, especially I see this, they find I'm a pastor, they're always looking something to argue about, they're always looking something to disagree with you about. It can be arrogant, sometimes self-righteous. Some people think they're beyond correction, they got it right in every single turn, and when they are proven wrong, they unhappily admit they were wrong, kind of forcing them into it. No humility. They're contentious. Paul writes to Timothy in First and Second Timothy that he reminds this young man, this young pastor, don't be quarrelsome. Don't be a contentious man. 
And here's the thing I want you to see. Not only does Jude begin with the gospel, the unmerited, unconditional love and grace of God, to remind us of it, but also he starts with the gospel because as we are contending for the faith, we are to do it graciously, with mercy. That is why he mentions at the end of the letter to have mercy on people, snatch them from the fire. So as exhortation to contend for the faith does not mean go out and be a jerk, argue with everyone you can, find something wrong with every single person. Just fight them all the time. So if you're a leader, if you're a pastor, if you're a community group leader, you're deacon, deaconesses in churches, maybe this church, and I speak this to myself too, if you love to contend for the faith, there's a problem. What we do is we love people. We love people. And out of the love of others, we contend for the faith, right? If you're just like, I'm, I'm looking for a fight, just, well, come on, let's, you know, something's wrong. So we have to revisit the gospel, all right? We have to go back to verse 1 and 2. I have to go back to verse 1 and 2. Now look with me at verse 3. Very important we get a run and start on verse 3, but we did. It took two weeks, but we got it. Okay, verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It's if Jude is writing a letter, maybe he started the letter, kind of came back to it. He's, he's drafting this letter to this church, and all of a sudden he gets word that something's going on in the church, the church that he knew, it says the beloved, the agapatos, says it's the ones in whom he loved, and he's like, scratch it. Right? It was before emails, maybe he didn't get an email in his inbox, but someone must have said something to him, and he's like, I, I wanted to write this beautiful letter that concerns or writing about our common salvation, our common rescue, our common grace in Christ, but I'm scratching it, and I'm writing this letter, and I'm not going to go too far here, but I, I think I'm comfortable with saying to you this morning that I believe that as he scratched the letter and had to write this new letter, there were tears in his eyes mixed with his anguish of the soul. Certainly anger over those who are infiltrating the church, who, who are willing to eat up God's people, but a broken heart. A broken heart that every good shepherd, every good pastor would feel for the confused and easily led strayed sheep. In fact, the word necessary, I found it necessary. NIV felt the need. Is there this compelling force as opposed to a willingness? He was compelled. He was morally constrained. He had to say something. Not he gets to say something. Well, I got a heretic in sight, man. I'm finding him. Yeah, bam. He had to. Not that he had not that he gets to, but he had to. Like I need to write this. I'm compelled. I'm under obligation of love to contend for the faith. The word contend, uh, epigonazomai, it, it's what they call herbox legomena. It's only once used in the scriptures. It's a hard word to really distinguish. It's used once in all the New Testament. But it, it's a verb that's been used outside the New Testament um, in, ancient, you know, in, in, in ancient times, in antiquity, for athletes. For athletes that were in a contest, it, it speaks of a, a vigorous, intense, determined to sh struggle to defeat the opposition, to run the race. In fact, the root agonize is where we get our word agony, and, the, and ep is the, is the Greek prep, meaning intensity. There's this 
deep, strong intensity to defeat the heretics, the heretics, the, the, the false teaching. I'm calling on you. I'm appealing to you. Paul wrote to Timothy, fight the good fight. So Judas is saying, I'm writing this letter to you. I was eager to write about our salvation, but I stopped. I wanted to write to you about the, un, the, the unmerited love and grace and mercy of Christ, but I found it necessary. I, I, I'm, I'm compelled vigorously to stand up with you in the false, against false teachers. So two things about this false teaching I want to talk about if you're taking notes. The first one is the faith delivered. And the second one is the false deception. Two things in verse 3 and 4, the faith that's been delivered and the false deception that is going on. Number one, the faith delivered. I find it necessary to contend for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, first, let's talk about the faith. Interesting, it's not the verb form that's mostly spoke about in Scripture, believing God. This has to do not with the verb, it's a noun. Uh, there's an article, the faith, which means it's, it, it's rather than the fact that they're believing in something, it, it's an object reality. Rather than the subject believing, it's a noun, the faith, and refers to the Christian doctrine, um, the apostolic teaching, the, the teaching that Jesus gave to, to the apostles that had been handed down to the church. It is the inspired scripture. It is the word of God, the faith. It's a special revelation contained in scripture that was produced by the Holy Spirit, of course, but through the apostolic preaching, the apostles of that day. And Jude is, is, we mentioned this last week, is attacking the, what is called antinomianism, which means against the law. It's another gospel, just like Paul in Galatians 1 attacks legalism, which is living by the law. Antinomianism is against the law. And Paul writes that it's a twisted gospel. If we or someone from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, this body of truth called the gospel, let him be accursed. I'll say it again, anyone preaching to you this gospel, this body of truth, the truth of the gospel, the good news, let him be accursed. So we got the faith, and how has it come? It's come delivered once for all. That means once for all time. In other words, this truth, this biblical truth, this gospel foundation has been laid. We're to cling to that which has been delivered. We are to hold on to that which has been handed down to the apostles. Now, I realize that some of you here, and I realize, especially in our day, in our culture, to speak of absolute doctrine, to speak of that which was handed down, dogma, doctrine, truths, unchanging truths, may fall on deaf ears. Not very respected in our day and time. In fact, some people believe, if you believe in absolute truth, you're nothing but an ignorant, hateful person. Although that's an absolute truth statement itself, but they don't want to deal with that. Especially when it comes to relationship with God, forgiveness, reconciliation, there is the faith, the truth, this, this doctrine, this, this dogma, this orthodoxy that's been handed down called the gospel, called faith, called the scripture. Truth does matter. Truth does matter. Not only does the scripture say that, but Jesus himself said Jesus himself said, it is the truth of the gospel that saves and is the truth that sets you free. John 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, my word, my teaching, all that I've said, you are truly my disciples, you're following me, learning from me, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
It's not simply just disseminating of truth, but the church is called to stand, to, to contend for the faith. Now, I put together, you, you can look in the New Testament, I put together just some things. What is the faith? What are some orthodoxy truths that we are to contend for? I just let me give you a couple. Number one, never wear jeans in church. Number two, drums are a no-no. The inerrancy, authority, and infallibility of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the full humanity and eternal deity of Christ our Lord, the miraculous virgin birth and sinless life of Jesus Christ, the sinfulness of all human beings, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross for sinners, the bodily resurrection from the grave, salvation, and we're going to talk about this because this is what the reformers rediscovered, is only by grace, is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's something to contend for. The return of Christ and the assignment of every person either to eternal blessedness with Christ in the eternal kingdom or eternal condemnation in a place called hell. Notice who this, the faith, the truth of the gospel has been entrusted to. The Pope, the bishops, the elders. Not what it says, does it? To the saints. Now, I'm not sure what background you come from, but when the Bible talks about saint, it's talking about Christians. Christians. It's talking about men and women, born again, loving Jesus, in the church. That's a saint. You don't need to have three miracles, walk on water two times, and tap dance and do something and become a saint. That's not the way it works. None of us deserve to be saints. Saints set, set apart is because God has done that for us. Over and over in the New Testament, when the Bible speaks of saints, it's talking about Christians. It's been delivered to the Christians, not a special sacred group within the church. Yes, elders have their place to oversee, to lead, to protect. I get that, but look what it says to the saints. So my question is, are you concerned? Are you concerned for the biblical doctrine of the church? Do you know your Bibles? Maybe you're new here and that's cool. And maybe you're learning about Jesus, that's cool. And maybe in a Christian, just recently, that's cool. But if you've been a Christian for a while, are you concerned? Are you reading your Bible? Are you reading? Are you understanding deeper and deeper the, things of, the deeper things of God? We have to contend for the faith. I hope you are. I hope you are. Because it's the congregation he says it. He says that you've got to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered. If I start saying something totally, totally off base in Scripture, you need to do something. Personally, I would say take me out back and, and put me through a wood chip file or something, but I'm, you need to do something. The faith delivered, and look at next, the false deception. The intrusion of these false teachers made it necessary to contend for the faith. Verse 4, for certain people have crept in, N-E-B says, worm their way in, I like that, unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Jews going to talk about that in a minute. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Unnamed folks, I think everyone knew in that day who they were, 
And he says to the congregation, look, they, they look good. They, they're at your conferences. They're speaking as if they're Christians. They look like they're teaching things that are, are Christian, but they're leading you astray. They're teaching cheap grace, perverted grace. And when doctrine goes bad, family, the heart goes bad. When doctrine goes bad, the heart goes bad. Belief and behavior go hand in hand. Theology matters for what you believe determines how you live. And Jude goes right to the juggler. Godless men. He says it again, the word in verse 15 and verse 18. He crystallizes his view of these imposters. And although Jude is concerned about their creed, he's pointing out their character and their conduct all the more. Their character is ungodly. That word means without worship, without reverence. Their conduct, they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. Sensuality is this absence of moral restraint, this wantedness, this indecency. It's about satisfying his or her lusts. These false teachers twist God's free grace, free forgiveness into an open shame of sinful behavior. If you have an NIV, it says it this way. They secretly slipped in among you. They're godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality. They take the grace and goodness of God in the free gift of salvation and use it for an occasion to sin. They do two things. They use grace as an excuse, as an excuse to live a life indifferent and sinful. And then look what it says. They deny Christ, the Lordship of Christ, about what the Bible teaches about his person and his work. Yes, it's true that, that the grace of God points us to God's saving work in Jesus Christ. But it also includes God's continuous activity that enables us, his grace enables us to, to know his will, to do his will, and to delight in his will. So can grace, can the grace of God be taken too far? Can there be a perversion of the grace of God? Jude thinks so. So does Paul. Paul preaches and, and writes this letter, excuse me, to the, to the Romans and goes through this beautiful first five verses, first five chapters on how everyone is sinful. No one will stand before God righteous except by the blood and the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And when he gets to verse six, chapter six, he anticipates a question. He just laid out the beauty of the grace of God. Chapter six, verse one, what shall we say then? He knows somebody in the congregation is gonna say this. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In Jude's day, people were saying that God's grace is sufficient for your sin, therefore go and do as you wish. Obviously, they weren't true Christians. Today, there are those who want to submit to the word of God only when it is good for them. Only when they think, you know what, I agree with this, I don't agree with that. So I'll, I'll, I'll believe this, I won't believe that. They disregard scripture and they rationalize things that have been taught and believed and understood orthodoxy and then they just try to rationalize it away. Pervert the grace of God. There's also what's called, maybe some of you have heard this, called hypergrace. Another false teaching, a guy named Joseph Prince from Singapore or Andrew Farley is another one from Texas. False teaching. 
One pastor put it this way, which is, I think was very well talking about this hype of grace. One of the fundamental, excuse me, one of the foundational doctrines of the hype of grace message is that God does not see the sins of his children since we have already been righteous, made righteous by the blood of Jesus. And since our sins, past, present, and future, have already been forgiven. Okay, I'm following you so far. That means, and this is what they teach, that the Holy Spirit never convicts believers of sin. Five churches were called to repent of sin in Revelation. That means that the Holy Spirit never convicts believers of sin, that believers never need to confess their sins to God, 1 John 1, 8, 9, and 10, and that believers never need to repent of their sins since God sees them as perfect in his sight, end quote, taking the grace of God to the extreme. These hyper-grace teachers in our day emphasized God's grace, beautiful, but to the extent that sin, repentance, holiness, reverence for God is largely ignored. Matt Chandler in Texas, great pastor, rightly said, I will know, I will know you understand the gospel when you are fervent and frequent in your confession and repentance. End quote. This false type of grace teaching uh, violates this precious and biblical and wonderful doctrine of grace to its extreme. They pervert the grace and they'll teach you there's no place for the moral standard of God. Ralph Davis, he's a, he's a, a New Testament scholar, said this. I know some Christians, this is a great quote, I know some Christians have an allergic reaction when they're told they are subject to the moral law of God. This they feel is legalism and an effort at salvation by works. That fear misunderstands the function of the law. The function of the law comes in the context of grace. Yahweh laid down the pattern in Exodus. He delivered his people, then he gave them his demands. He works his redemption before he sets down his requirements. He first sets Israel free, then he tells them how they are, how that freedom is to be enjoyed and maintained. Glad obedience to God's moral law is simply our logical act of worship, end quote. Dr. Tim Keller in New York City, in a, in a work, you can look it up, it's called The Grace of the Law. Great uh, article, The Grace of the Law, Dr. Tim Keller. He points out, and we, t- we talked about this in Galatians 3, that living under the law is, is not about law obeying, but law relying. It's those who rely upon doing things in order to be made right with God, that somehow my moral performance and my obedience somehow will get me into a relationship with God. That is crushing, that is, that is legalism. But when we learn that Christ has fulfilled the law for us, that now we who believe in him are secured in his love, we would naturally, says, want to delight resembling the one who has done all this for that. How? By the law. Paul writes it this way. I am not free from God's law, but I am under the law of Christ. He's not under the law a way to earn salvation, but he's freed by Jesus fulfilling the law to see the beauty of God's law fulfilled in Christ and to submit to the moral standard of God as a way, an act of worship. Romans 12, Paul writes that the law is holy, righteous, and good. He delights in the law of God in the inner being. Now let me be perfectly clear. If you've been sleeping, wake up. You cannot obey your way into salvation. That is not what the Bible says. You cannot follow any laws or rituals, moral codes or conduct that will somehow bring you into a relationship with God. Cannot happen. 
Religion, from a non-gospel standpoint, is I obey God, I will follow certain moral standards, and then God will love me, he will forgive me, and he will accept me. That's religion. The gospel is, the faith worth contending for, is that God loves and accepts and forgives me because of the obedience of Christ. His perfect fulfilling of the law and his substitutionary death on the cross is my only hope. It's not what I've done, it's what Christ has already done. And because I am loved, because I am forgiven, because I have been accepted, because I've been reconciled to God out of gratitude and love, I will, I will want to obey the one who has done all that for me. There's a big difference between the two. Jude says those who pervert the grace of God who take grace to a turn and turn into license. Jude says those who take God's grace and turn it into a license would, would respond to Paul's question, should I sin that grace may abound? They would say yes. The answer is no. You'll know when someone is falsely teaching a perverted grace when the law of God is either directly or indirectly rejected as applicable in any way. Sin is hardly mentioned, and the process by which we grow as Christians does not include confession and repentance of sins, and their destruction is guaranteed just like the days of old. Can you be saved by works? No. Can you be saved by obeying the law? No. You were saved by Christ alone, through faith alone and grace alone, through Christ alone. And then that heart, that renewed heart, desires after the things of Christ big difference between the two. So let's look at this picture. We've got about five minutes. We're going to wrap it up. Okay, maybe six. Let's look quickly at three stories, three examples of failure. We can look more at this next week. Jude says, listen, I want to remind you, I want to warn you. There are three stories that you all know, and I want you to show you these stories because in the end, it's all the same. There's destruction. Israel, verse five, the chosen people, verse six, the angels, Verse 7, the Gentiles. God's not a respective person when it comes to judgment. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Israel, the chosen angels and Gentiles. Look at verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, you already fully knew this, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jude says, I know you know this, but I want to put this in perspective. And look at the high Christology here, what Jude believes about Jesus Christ. Verse 4, he says he's master and Lord, Verse 17, 21, and 25, he calls Jesus Lord. Look here. Jesus delivered, redeemed Israel and liberated the nation from bondage. It was Jesus. The people failed, though, to continue in this faith, in this believing, and rebelled and were destroyed. That's what he's saying. So Israel was told, listen, get a, get a lamb, slaughter it, put the blood over the doorpost, and when, they, when, when, when I come, God says, when I come and I will bring judgment upon the land, you follow my word, you believe and take shelter under the substitutionary sacrifice of that lamb, and I will bypass you. I will pass over, but I will kill all the other firstborn. They believed God, and they did it. Hmm. But then they got into the wilderness. They're in the, they're in the door of Canaan on Kadesh Barnea, and remember, the spies go up. And they're like, whoa, this is not good. They're like grasshoppers. They're giants. Everybody but Joshua and Caleb. In fact, the leaders wanted to go back, go back to bondage. And what does God do? God says, you know what? Nobody's going in. None of y'all who, who disbelieved 
except Joshua and Caleb will go in. And for 40 years, you will wander and you will die. This generation will die in the wilderness. Paul in 1 Corinthians and the Hebrew writer of Hebrews uses this story to illustrate important truths. And what we see here is that Israel did not believe God. There were those within the nation of Israel that did not believe. That's what their sin is. They did not believe. And there are those in Jude's myths who call themselves God's people who do not believe. They do not recognize the apostolic authority. They do not recognize the gospel. They're using grace as an excuse for their immorality. And Jude says, you know what? They're going to fall just like those who did not believe in the wilderness. That's the first illustration. God's chosen. Number two, verse six. And the angel did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We believe in angels. We know from the scriptures that the angels, these angelic beings created by God, there were some who rebelled with Satan, uh, Lucifer, and a third of the angels fell and they become demons. We believe that. We believe what the scripture says about that. And the Bible says here that the Lord had kept them and they were going to face an eternal consequences. Look what it says. They did not stay within their own position of authority. They abandoned their proper dwelling. They were looking for just like Satan, to be higher than they are. They were looking for their, a, a different station, a different position that God had given them, just like Satan who fell. I could be like God. And he designated them, and they're in chains awaiting final judgment. Now, if you're studying this in your community groups, uh, you'll see that there are a couple of possibilities. You know, who are the angels that, were, who are, the angels that are bound right now? There are some that are roaming the earth. There are some that are, that are bound. Who are they? We don't know. This could be just a story that was given to Jude, uh, through the, through the, of course, through the inspiration of Scripture, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, some fallen angels not recorded in Scripture. Some people believe it's the ones in Genesis 6, where the sons of God, a.k.a. angels, came into the daughters of men and bore children. I don't believe that, because angels don't procreate. I think... It's the angels that fell, original fall of Satan found in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and yet God had taken some fallen angels and he bound them. But either way, the point is clear, right? The point is clear. Those who are in high position, those who have been given authority, who, like the angels who were cast down, they had authority at a place that they were in, but they sought higher authority, those in Jude's midst who were teaching false doctrine, who were perverting the grace, have a place of authority, but don't hold on to it. Because just as the angels fell, you too will fall. That's a warning. That's what he says. And finally, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is, is, has been an impact majorly within Scripture. 20 references in the Bible. And the cities, and, and, and that city and the cities around them had a, a, a disaster come upon them as a reminder uh, of the judgment of God against sin, particularly sexual sin. Sodom and Gomorrah is known for their sexual sin, but also pride. They disregard for people in Ezekiel uh, 16. But we know from Scripture that sexual perversion was one that marked them. God said, enough is enough. In John 19, we read, The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heaven. 
story you can read about it in Genesis. We went through the book of Genesis online if you want. They committed porneia, which is sexual sin, and they went after what's called sarkos hitaros, means unnatural desire or strange flesh. The flesh of strange men called homosexuality. The Bible's clear on its denunciation of homosexuality behavior as sin. And let me say this, actually, the Bible's actually clear that all sexual activity outside of covenant and marriage between one man and one woman is sin. Too often, the church in the past says nothing about the rampant fornication in the church, the adultery in the church, the lust issues in the church, and they want us to pick on one particular sexual sin. We don't want to do that here. Because all have sinned, all has fallen short of the glory of God. There's particular sins that you struggle with. There's particular sins that I struggle with. All of us need love and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And if you're thinking, I don't really struggle with sin, here's the good news. It's self-righteousness. You're welcome. You struggle with that. Like any other struggle, those in slavery to sexual sin need to be loved, as I said. Not to be hated, but to be spoken to with love and grace and mercy. And I don't want to develop this, but let me just say this. People want to talk about all, one man, one woman, covenant marriage, everything else is sin. Does that mean God doesn't forgive? Absolutely not. 1 Corinthians 6 says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral idolaters, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexually, nor thieves, nor greedy, drunkards, revelers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. But not anymore. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Yes, God will judge unbelief, but God wants to forgive God wants to restore. God wants to wash you and cleanse me of my sexual sins. There's only one hope, and that's the extravagant grace of God. Grace clearly shows us that God did for us in sending his own son to die on the cross in our place. This extravagant and amazing grace revealed at the cross is an amazing gift to those who truly believe. We can be forgiven of all our sins. We have complete atonement on the cross. And the Holy Spirit will come and will wash you. By the blood of Jesus, you'll be washed. And the Holy Spirit will show you and make you new. Will give you new desires. Will give you new minds, new hearts to want to follow and love Jesus. So I don't want to beat up on any particular sin. I have my own sin to deal with. But I will tell you this. God loves you. God will forgive you, God will liberate you, and God will help you in your struggles as he helps me in my struggles every day, regardless of what they may be. Do you know the power of God's grace? Do you know the work of God's grace? Are you willing to show mercy and grace to others? Are we really to be humble and recognize the calling, the love, the keeping, the mercy, the peace, and the love of God? With that, we can go and contend we love people and we want them to know Jesus. Father, thank you for this little timely book. I'm so reminded this week on how much I need your multiplying grace, your multiplying peace and love and mercy in my life. Help us, Father, to contend for the gospel, but do it in love and mercy, generosity and kindness. Let us, let us love people so well. Let us be so generous 
to people that they will see, as your word tells us, our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven for your glory and our joy. 